you can vigorously oppose speech, but shouting it down or insulating yourself from viewpoints that you don't like is never the answer, especially somewhere like Georgetown or UC Hastings. Well, I mean, based off of the tweet, the guy definitely doesn't get a lot of points from me, but I do totally agree that he shouldn't be fired. And as for the shouting down speech thing, I also agree with that, whether you're at law school or whether you're during the State of the Union. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Robbie Gupta. I'm Corey Bradford. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, a lot happening in the world today. It's just like too much stuff going yeah. on, honestly, <laughs> way too much. The U.S. is on high alert for potential Russian cyber attacks as Moscow looks to retaliate against crushing sanctions. A guest speaker at UC Hastings Law School gets his speech drowned out by a sea of protesters. Why was this guest not welcome? You guessed it, an issue involving race. And speaking of race, Fort Lauderdale is racing to the bottom. They are down a police chief, but they might be up a college basketball referee. But first things first, let's talk about energy. Let's talk about oil. As of this morning, the national average for a gallon of gasoline is at its highest in history, 417. And that makes today's announcement. Today, I'm announcing the United States is targeting the main artery of Russia's economy. We're banning all imports of Russian oil and gas and energy. That means Russian oil will no longer be acceptable at U.S. ports and the American people will deal another powerful blow to Putin's war machine. Now, over in Europe, some countries are so dependent on Russian energy, they're not willing to go there. But the White House is willing to go it along despite these surges we're seeing at the pump. So, Ravi, what is your read on all of this? Well, the highest gas prices that we've had in recent memory were 2008. And we're actually slightly below that in, in inflation-adjusted terms. So we're still not there yet. But I I'm confident we'll probably get there very soon based on what's been happening this week. And I think people may be confused because we've been told that the U.S. is self-sufficient for energy since 2019, that we were energy independent. But uh, just because we produce enough uh, domestically doesn't mean that we don't import oil because we're actually exporting oil in certain cases while bringing some in. And I think one of the weird reasons for this is the market economics. Most of our refineries are in the Gulf Coast uh, and we're sending a lot of that abroad just because I guess it's it just makes sense for these companies. They, they're able to trade uh, at a higher, at a higher um, per barrel amount. And then we're bringing in oil, including from Russia, in our coasts and the east and west coast. And so we take 3% of our crude oil comes from Russia, which is not that much. But the refined oil, which is what you put in your car, is 21%, uh, in part because of those refineries in the Gulf Coast are sending so much abroad. So we are dependent on Russia in a way. And so this is going to make a huge difference. So it's already sending a price shock uh, around the world. And obviously, this is this touched off a huge debate domestically about Biden and whether he's doing enough. Yeah. So obviously, Biden has gotten a lot of criticism for um, his expressed policies or desire to kind of pull back on a lot of our oil productions and pipelines and stuff. But I think that there is admittedly some misplaced blame, um, even though he came in with like a hardline stance against any further oil expansion and uh, signed a federal or executive order almost immediately upon assuming office that would prevent any new um, federal oil drilling on government lands that ultimately was shut down by the court and in the end did not come to fruition. So I think that there definitely is 
is misplaced blame, but there also was a legitimate expressed interest in on his part to um, kind of pull back our production. So I'm glad that the court blocked it, obviously, because we never would have expected to be in a situation like this. But this goes to show that, you know, as much as as we do care about the environment domestically, there are really important and intertwined international issues at play here as well. Yeah, and as part of that, you know, Biden has actually outpaced Trump in issuing drilling permits on public lands. There and there are nine thousand approved oil leases that oil companies are not currently tapping right now. Uh, and in part, what's going on is we had this weird situation in the middle of the pandemic where oil was trading uh, at a negative value, meaning it was more expensive to hold oil to store it, yeah. uh, to store, to store it um, than its actual value was at that time. And that's because nobody was going anywhere, mm-hmm. uh, and there's only so much capacity to store oil in this country. And uh, there's this entity called the American uh, Petroleum Institute, which is essentially the lobbying arm of big oil. And they came after Biden recently saying, you know, Ukraine's essentially his fault. Uh, And in part, what they pointed to, Ricky, was what you talked about, which was his intention Mm -hmm. early in the administration, which was at least when it comes to federal land, which is, you know, largely what he can control. He can control federal land. He can control uh, domestic stockpiles, strategic reserves, which he's released. He was releasing some of this before Mm -hmm. any of this. They went after him saying this was essentially your fault, which I find really interesting because this is a an entity that has been lobbying against any sanctions on Russia, continuously going back to Crimea, going back to the interfer- interference in our election, going all the way recently to January when Russia was amassing troops on our border. The American Petroleum Institute was cautioning Congress not to be rash, in part because a lot of these oil companies have had strong relationships with Russia. Now, to their credit, some of them like Exxon have pulled back recently, but only when it became untenable for yeah. them. Mm-hmm. And so to me, I'm frustrated with oil companies. I'm not one of those people who who thinks that like oil companies are the only big bad that we have on issues of climate change. But it is frustrating that this is an entity that has fought the US response every step of the way. And there's tons of evidence that oil companies are actually slowing production or at least dragging their feet on increased production because they're getting record windfalls like the scarcity is actually to their benefit yeah there is this narrative and a lot of people where i come from in alabama are really pushing this narrative that that joe biden is somehow solely responsible for these high gas prices that the government is somehow solely responsible for these high gas prices and based off all the things that we just said that's just not true i mean the oil they're producing in the gulf for instance two-thirds of that gets exported overseas you know not to mention there's a difference in the type of oil that we can collect here in America versus the type of oil that is more usable. For instance, West Coast refineries rely heavily on this Russian type of oil called light sweet crude, which is just an awesome name. It sounds like a <laughs> soda or something that I would drink. And this is a oil that's easier to refine and easier to turn into gasoline for us, whereas some of the heavier crudes, like for instance, the Keystone Pipeline that everybody talks about that Biden shut down, it would have given us this uh, heavier crude called heavy tar sands oil which is just much worse for the environment and harder to refine. So that that's a big part of this too. But when we well, talk just on that before you move on, just keep in mind what I said about the refineries too, right? Uh, if we're only getting 3% of our imports from Russia on the crude, on the crude oil, then the Keystone pipeline really isn't going to make much of a difference yeah. on this front. It's the refined oil that's really the the difference maker when it comes to Russia. And that's what we're getting about 21% yes. from, from Russia. Yeah. So that's a big thing. So speaking of Russia, um, Ricky, so we're about to shut down importation of oil from Russia, but that's pretty much a no-go for Europe. Why is that? Yeah, it sounds like we're likely to stand alone. Um, there were some talks that maybe Japan might follow suit, but in terms of Europe and the EU, that doesn't sound like any sort of um, sanctions on oil or 
um, energy coming from Russia is going to happen. Uh, 41% of the EU's natural gas is imported from Russia, 27% of crude oil, 46.7% uh, of coal. And even though the EU climate chief, the European Commission president, they have all been pushing um, energy independence. Uh, even seven years ago, I was uh, listening to a video of the EU climate chief saying we need to be independent from Russia. It's clear that that never came to fruition and we're really seeing the consequences of that now. Zelensky is calling for bans on Russian energy imports and said some would call it an embargo. Others would call it morality when you reject giving money to a terrorist. And so it sounds like that's not going to happen, though, because the EU requires a unanimous vote of the 27 countries within it. And especially Germany is not going to do that because they are enormously dependent on Russian energy. They are the largest economy. They're the largest importer of Russian crude oil. Um, and they've kind of had like a change through trade idea that if if goods are crossing the border, then tanks won't. And that doesn't really seem to have come to fruition. Um, and they're pushing back on all the plans to uh, sanction Russian oil, especially because it's still cold there and they really needed to heat people's homes. And luckily, you know, this didn't happen in the, earlier in the winter when there's more time that we might have like a potential real huge need in Germany for for oil to heat homes. But um, the winter and how that and how long this progresses will ultimately play a huge role. In Ricky, correct me if I'm wrong. They dragged Germany, um, which I think, as you mentioned, is the, the largest economy in the EU, right? Mm -hmm. They they dragged their feet on nuclear, right? Yeah, they um, they shut down a ton of nuclear plants and their, their dependence is huge, but they've kind of changed their tune a little bit. They've been criticized also for keeping a very small portion of their GDP and uh, putting it into defense. And they've kind of, they've decided to change their tune and, and promote domestic oil production and energy production, as well as increase their defense expenditure. But it seems like it's a little late for that. Yeah, that's not the kind yeah. of stuff that's going to show but fruit the, overnight. No, well, yeah. there's a historical reason why Germany would not want to put a lot of uh, money into their military. Now, um, <laughs> As far as we're concerned here in America, the question then becomes, well, who replaces that? And there's been a lot of talks about Saudi Arabia. Uh, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki would not confirm this past Monday if uh, Biden was going to go to Saudi Arabia. But there is talks of that a trip to Saudi Arabia to ask for increased oil production would be a hat in hand trip for President Biden, who promised the nation that Saudi Arabia would pay for the slaying of Khashoggi. Uh, we all remember when that particular incident happened. You're referring to a, a journalist. A journalist. And, and I'm not sure. He was either a Washington Post journalist or Washington affiliated. Post. He's and affiliated he, with Washington Post, yes. He, you know, he died in mysterious circumstances that seem... Seems allegedly, like allegedly the Saudi credibly allegedly uh, laid yeah. at the feet of, of very powerful people in Saudi Arabia. Yes, yes, yes. So there's a lot of criticism on both sides here. Representative Omar has criticized U.S. talks with Saudi Arabia in light of what's going on in Yemen, while Marco Rubio on the other side of the aisle has also criticized handing our oil production off to authoritarian countries. So it's kind of like a, a zero-sum game, a no-win game here for Biden. Right, and I think people are overselling Saudi Arabia here because Russia puts out 4.5 million barrels per day in crude exports and 2.5 million barrels per day in other oil product exports. So put that number together at seven million barrels mm -hmm. per day, mm -hmm. right? And there's an analyst uh, at Goldman Sachs uh, who pointed out that basically the magnitude of Russia's exports are, you, Saudi Arabia will barely make a dent in this. And that, you know, Saudi Arabia at best can add 1 million to that number 
on a daily basis, and that OPEC as a whole can add 2 million. So that's just a small part of this puzzle here. So, you know, let's say we get OPEC and Saudi Arabia to add that 2 million every day, which is it's going to be a tough sell, right? And involves a lot of trade-offs, like who knows what Saudi Arabia is going to be asking in return. Yeah, um, yeah. And these aren't always the most transparent conversations, right? Yeah. So you've got that, and there's tons of reasons to think that OPEC won't go along with this yeah, because of very the critical. ties between some of the other OPEC countries yeah. and Russia, for example. But yeah, and Biden's been critical of some of these countries. So then you got to you then you got to go to Venezuela, Iran. We've got to make uh, you know trade offs domestically, right? Where as we've talked about, we're already you know Biden put for sale a huge part of the Gulf for for drilling. I think it was one of the largest sales um, for oil exploration in history. Like we're already making tons of trade offs. So this is kind of a scary world. Just thinking about how do we even get to that seven million barrels per day? Now we might not need to get to seven because people aren't following us. But like, let's say this war escalates and that they do have to follow us, then we're in real trouble. And this is on top of the fact that there's already kind of a silent embargo going on. Like there, some people are putting the number to two to 2.5 million barrels per day that Russia isn't exporting just because of the private sector boycotts that are happening in Russia. So this is tricky. Well, that's not the only thing that's scary. And that's not the only thing really threatening us when it comes to Russia and uh, the possibilities of things that they could do to us. While Russia threatens spiking energy prices, they've got another slightly nerdier weapon too: cyber attacks. We know Moscow has serious capabilities when it comes to this. And we also know that the U.S. does not exactly have an impenetrable defense when it comes to this. Now, the Department of Homeland Security has warned that Russian cyber attacks could be imminent and that, quote, every organization in the United States is at risk. So, Ravi, how concerned should the average American be about cyber attacks and how prepared are we to handle them? Yeah, I think, you know, all aspects of our government and private sector are bracing themselves for cyber attacks from Russia. And obviously, Russia has a huge history here. And some people like Warner in the Senate have, have talked about potentially U.S. going further and that we have an obligation to our NATO allies that if they're attacked in a cyber attack, that maybe we'll uh, invoke NATO's Article 5, so collective defense. So World War III. Uh, you know, so this is, this is you know, at least to my knowledge, one of the first times this has been, you know, cyber warfare has been thrown in with Article 5 mm -hmm. outside of, you know, esoteric security conferences. And this comes as uh, there was a really illuminating opinion piece in the New York Times recently by Glenn Gertzel, who is the former, former general counsel of the National Security Agency, is one of the agencies that is really, you know, involved is, is heavily involved in probably our offensive and defensive cyber warfare. And he said that the U.S. is vulnerable when it comes to cyber attacks. And he's particularly pointed to the fact that we don't have a centralized entity within our government that's tasked with our cyber defense and cyber offense. And he did point to the fact that Biden has consolidated coordination within the Department of Homeland Security, but he pointed out all sorts of problems with the way that this is configured, like the lack of authority the DHS has to push private sector actors to do the right thing, the lack of turf over like the vast array of the types of policies that are happening. And essentially what it boils down to is one cyber attack on say our transportation infrastructure uh, is probably going to rhyme with an attack or use similar capabilities on something else within our government, like let's say our energy infrastructure, for example. And the fact that we have different agencies tasked with handling these different responses and they have limited ability to push the private sector to do certain things given the the nature and the, the importance of some of these pieces of infrastructure, that we're in a we're we're potentially in a world of trouble here and, and something could be coming very soon that could just add to the chaos that we're seeing. Uh, wow. Yeah. 
Yeah, and there's definitely a ton of different fronts, not just like the commercial, the financial, the infrastructural, the governmental issues here, but also the personal data risks as well. And it's coming from all fronts kind of at the same time. We don't know what angle Russia might potentially try to hit us at. But it's also worth saying that according to the International Institute for Strategic Success, we're the foremost cyber superpower. So even though we might not have the best defenses necessarily, we are kind of strongest um, in the sense of our infrastructure digitally. So a little bit of... There is a history here on the offense front, which is like, I guess it's cold comfort because it's like, I guess I, I want us to have good offense, but I really, really want us to have good defense. You know, our history on offense is pretty significant here. We had the Stuxnet uh, in 2010. We basically shut down a nuclear reactor in Iran. And mm-hmm. a lot of people say there's one of the most sophisticated cyber attacks in history. In 2019, there was an attack on a Russian electrical grid that, you know, there allegedly came from people from US Cyber Command. So we have our history of offense. Russia has their history of offense in 2017. Um, they used a cyber weapon called NotPetya, which Wired called the most devastating cyber attack in history. And it started in Ukraine, but then rapidly spread throughout the private sector across the world. And so this is this sucks. Like you know, you had two you know major powers launching unprecedented cyber attacks on each other that are rippling across our economy. And Harvard, um, they have this center called the Belfer Center. And they issued a report on our cyber defense, and this is what they said. They said, to say that the U.S. is not prepared for a cyber 9-11 is an understatement and employs the wrong analogy. This country and its people, its businesses, and its government are already under attack. Yeah, that's that's insane. I mean, and good offense is nothing without a good defense. Everybody knows defenses win championships. The Bills know this from, from our playoff history, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure they do. You know, there was a solar winds attack that occurred back in 2020 in which they were basically hacking the State Department, the Pentagon. We all remember the colonial pipeline attack from last year that basically shut down a pipeline in Houston and it caused a lot of gas stations in, in the southeastern United States to, uh, you know, basically for their prices to go up. So this is something that could really affect just the average person. And uh, I think we definitely, you know, the government's got to get their shit together. I mean, they've got to they consolidate this because right now there's approximately 80 different committees and subcommittees that claim jurisdiction over various aspects of cyber regulation. That's way too many hands in the pot. Yeah, there's and there's a lot, you know, Russia is not only home to a lot of this sort of institutional cyber warfare, but it's also home to a lot of, you know, individual players. And so, you know, there's that problem of, hey, the big corporation or the government entity getting hacked. And then there's the problem of like my dad responding to like a random email that steals his financial information and his identity. And there's a lot of reason to believe that both those problems uh, overlap with Russia pretty significantly. And the unfortunate reality of how we live right now is we need Russia to crack down it's hard to ask them to stop the institutional stuff because that's like in their interest and that's that has to do with global diplomacy. But you want them to crack crack down on the the you know the the small time entrepreneurs because at least in, in that case you can imagine like they have less of an interest in allowing that stuff to flourish within their borders. And and I, I don't, I'm not sure we're gonna see we're not gonna see like a, a pretty um, vigorous reaction from Russia moving forward on this stuff. Yeah. Well, tell your dad to stop opening those emails. I mean, there's no yeah. Nigerian <laughs> prince that's gonna that's gonna refund him that money. I don't <laughs> so, nobody's move- gonna get an IRS refund. So oh. he needs to click on that link. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's move on. A panel event at UC Hastings Law School went completely haywire last week after a group of law students shouted down a guest speaker named Ilya Shapiro. <laughs> He was supposed to talk about the Supreme Court confirmation process, but 
caught so much flack from students over an earlier tweet about potential candidates for the Supreme Court, a tweet that the students called racist, that he was drowned out at this event by protest. Now, Ricky, you are the uh, free speech person on our panel here. Uh, walk us through this. So Ilya Shapiro is a Cato Institute scholar who was appointed uh, to Georgetown Law's Center of the Constitution to lead that uh, department. And back in January, he tweeted during the appointment or Biden's appointment to the Supreme Court, kind of speaking out against using immutable characteristics as a litmus test for um, who he would appoint and instead offered or suggested that this um, Indian American judge should become the appointee. And in that tweet, it was very unartfully worded um, and a lot of kind of shorthand. And and he used the phrase lesser black woman in the tweet, which was he later apologized for. And he said that he did not mean to cause offense. But obviously that phrase in this context is is hard to swallow for a lot of people. And so this ended up with a, um, a huge sit-in at Georgetown, people demanding reparations, demanding uh, like areas to cry on campus, and just a meltdown on Georgetown's campus, uh, demands to fire him. And in the end, Georgetown put him on a paid administrative leave with a pending investigation that's still in place. And then now he went to UC Hastings and he was shouted down pretty vigorously. <laughs> Um, banging on tables, completely could not say anything. For the entire hour, the students that were there to listen to him could not hear him speak. And it went pretty poorly. The professor that was there to um, oppose him actually said to one of the protesters that he supported the protests. And it's important to make the delineation that no matter what he said, this is not a defense of what he said. This is a defense of academic freedom. And you know, you have to support what you agree with and what you disagree with. And certainly this was an inartful phrase that he used. But in the end, shouting down speakers is never the answer. That's not how free speech works, especially in a public institution like UC Hastings. And luckily, the school condemned that in the end. But it's not a good look for our future lawyers. And something like 200 plus professors at Georgetown came to his defense, right? Yes. Yeah. Even Nicole Hannah-Jones uh, said there was nothing to investigate with his ongoing investigation at Georgetown. Um, you know, there's, it was an inartful tweet. He apologized. There's also, you know, Georgetown has a little bit of a hypocrisy problem here too, because there was this other professor in 2018, I think her name is Carol Christine Fair. Mm -hmm. And she tweeted the following in reference to Republican senators who supported Brett Kavanaugh. She tweeted, look at this chorus of entitled white men justifying a serial rapist arrogated entitlement. All of them deserve miserable deaths while feminists laugh as they take their last gasps. Bonus, we castrate their corpses and feed them to swine. Jesus. Yes. Now, any guess as to what happened to her? What did Georgetown do Did there? she get a promotion? <laughs> she, nothing. <laughs> they defended her saying this is her speech. She's entitled mm -hmm. to say it. Uh, and that to me is problematic because that, that's saying this, yeah. is a, this is a clearly liberal person saying crazy shit. Violence. Uh, now, she should be able to say that. I don't yeah. think she should be fired for that. I certainly wouldn't want to take her class. But like, <laughs> she's entitled to say that. But I think what you're seeing is a double standard where you have, as you described, Ilya Shapiro, who is a known conservative, who says something objectionable and is put on administrative leave. Now, mm -hmm. who even knows what happens to him? Is it even tenable for him to remain on campus after this? So that, to me, is the problem. Not what he originally said. Yeah. Uh, and there's some really smart stuff out there. There's, you know, I, John McWhorter wrote an interesting piece where he said, basically, I really hate what this guy said, but there are multiple interpretations of it. And I generally come out um, where McWhorter is. But I think even if you don't come out where John McWhorter is on that, like this double standard is ridiculous. 
Yeah. yeah. The double standard aspect is pretty ridiculous. Yeah, I do agree with that. And I, so I'm a fellow at the Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education, and they came out with a statement after this about why shouting down a protester is never the answer, or shouting down a speaker is never the answer. That's not a valid means of protest. That's that's using your speech to obstruct someone else's speech. But there are tons of other things that you can do. You can turn your back on a speaker. You can hold signs. You can ask questions. You can write an article about how much you hate them before or after they come onto campus. You can hold a competing event at the same time to draw people away from it. You, there's a million things that you can do, but ultimately our future lawyers in this country, especially you know at Georgetown, which is a really prestigious law school, it's concerning to see people who feel like they can't listen to or tolerate or feel comfortable in themselves when they hear distressing or potentially offensive things because law can be extremely distressing and right. extremely disturbing and they're going to have to be in courtrooms you know litigating very intense like potentially violent crimes and so you know these are our future leaders and we need to make sure that you can you can vigorously oppose speech but shouting it down or insulating yourself from from viewpoints that you don't like is never the answer especially at somewhere like Georgetown or UC Hastings. Well, I mean, based off of the tweet, the guy definitely doesn't get a lot of points from me, but I do totally agree that he shouldn't be fired. And as for the shouting down speech thing, I also agree with that. It's not smart to uh, shout down speech, whether you're at a law school or whether you're during the State of the Union. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, um, so let's move on. The city of Fort Lauderdale has fired its police chief, Larry Scarato, over complaints of discrimination in his promotion process. But this was a case of discrimination we rarely hear about. An investigation found that the police chief unfairly focused on minority candidates while hiring. Now, he's only been on the job since August, but it certainly appears like he never won over the department when multiple senior staffers turned on him in an investigation into his hiring practices. On the bright side, the former top cop does moonlight as a college basketball ref. So he's got another gig in uniform to fall back on. But in all seriousness, what is going on in Fort Lauderdale? Well, let me tell you what's going on. This police chief, Larry Scarato, who's actually the first openly gay chief hired in Fort Lauderdale, and uh, he is of mixed race background. Now, he took this uh, chief position after being a former uh, assistant chief in Pittsburgh, where he served for 23 years. And basically, he was given the he, one of his first things when he was a police chief was he was supposed to promote someone to a higher position. I believe it was a captain position, if I'm not incorrect about that. And he had a bunch of senior staffers in the police department help him make this choice. The senior staffers decided that there was an individual, Lieutenant Charlie Stutters, a white male with 20 years on the job, that they all agreed this was the man for this job. And Scarado said, not Charlie. He said, it's going to be between these two. And he pointed out two other police officers that he wanted to give the job to. And um, apparently, when he was trying to choose between these two other candidates, allegedly, he said, which one is blacker? Mm -hmm. And I, I guess saying that he was going to give the position to whoever was the, 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 the blackest of the two. Uh, one witness reportedly said that minority status is not related to the darkness of the pigment of their skin. And you can't choose someone based on their skin color like that. To which the chief replied, well, which one will be more acceptable to the community or is this an accurate reflection of the community? So it sounds like he was trying to be you know, inclusive, but he was just going about it the wrong way. I, I think where he finally wound up in that exchange, to the extent that we, we rely upon that transcript, 
is 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 probably where he should have started, which is like we need to reflect the community, right? Mm -hmm. And I think by the data, the police force has some work to do to better reflect the diversity of the community, especially given the history of policing issues in the African American community. Like all laudable, important goals, right? Now, he just seems really sloppy about how he went about this process. And you know, your job as a leader of that police department is to build support for your policies. And when you can't get that support, it's to hold people accountable to carry them out. And it seems like he just seems like he didn't have like, you know, his feet on the ground when it comes to just like basic 101 in organizational change here. Yeah. yeah. And there's another um, allegation that came out out of this investigation where he was standing in front of a wall of like framed photos of uh, heads of the office or or high up uh, officers and said that wall is too white. I'm going to change that in front of people, which um, which offended a lot of the people that testified against him. Um, there were 21 witnesses that all seemed to have unanimously agreed that he's made promotions based on race in their opinion. Um, and they're alleging that the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission's uh, regulations are violated um, if the, if that's really the metric that he's ultimately using in the end for to choose his promotions. But he denies the, uh, which is blacker, comment. And also um, only six out of his 15 promotions that he's made have been people of like minority classes. And so, you know, there's, there's both sides to this story here, but um, ultimately it seems like this allegation um, and this investigation was pretty conclusive and he lost his job for it. So this is a tricky one for me because on the one hand, I don't think you should be looking at candidates based solely off of their race. It should be about, you know, way more than that. It should be about what they're capable of. But at the same time, if you are hired to change the nature of a police department in this time period where things are so tense between the black community and police departments, and you, like, for instance, if you looked at a wall of pictures of people who were leaders of the police department, he said, well, this wall is too white. Well, that's a very off-color uh, statement, uh, literally. But the thing is, if he really does feel like the police department is not a reflection of the environment that they're policing, what's wrong with trying to change that? Yeah, but I think part my feeling is part of changing that also means doing everything possible to bring everybody else along. Now, if they still don't come along with you, in my opinion, then it's on them. But it doesn't sound to me like he did enough to convince the people in his department that his criteria were sound. And there was yeah. this one exchange between him and a guy who was passed up. This guy, I love the names involved here, by the way. This is a guy named Malushi, right? So um, Malushi goes up, and Malushi is upset because he was passed up for some job, right? And he goes up to Scroto at this reception, and this is according to the transcript from this report. He goes, so you're, you're promoting a guy with an internal affairs investigation kicked out of special events, IA. And Skoroto replies, that's just where we're at. And then Malushi goes back, I'm senior to both an overall time and rank. And then Skoroto replies again, that's just where we're at. And then Malushi goes on to say, I thought you were hired to change things. There was a culture where there was patronage, yada, yada, yada. Uh, and then apparently, according to some other witness, uh, the Skoroto guy walks away from this exchange and goes, who's this Malushi guy? I want to punch him in the face. <laughs> so... I don't, I don't know what to make of this, but like, it sounds to me like this guy, like if he's gonna be pushing this, this police department to reform, which is admirable, and I do think police departments should reflect the communities they serve, you've gotta be 
you know, better at this. Like you can't be so sensitive to people pushing back against your policies. You have to take the time, be patient, explain it to them, come up with criteria that you're honest about, implement those criteria with fidelity, take feedback. Even if you disagree with the feedback, respect the people giving it to you. So if this guy is right that this other person had an internal affairs investigation, and if that guy is right that there was a history of patronage and issues, you need to take the time to be like, look, this is why this is different. This is why that internal affairs investigation, you know, we wound up looking past it because nothing came we like just spend the time to bring people along you know what i'm saying yeah and also people who have been looked over for jobs are never going to you know speak highly of the person that looked them over for jobs so you have to take everything that these individuals are saying with a grain of salt but my question is what do you do then to change that culture because i think he was being way too obvious and transparent with what he was doing and i think he was not doing it i think he was doing it possibly in good faith i'm not sure but he wasn't being smart about it right um but I always say this, like when we're talking about the Supreme Court, it's like, okay, well, we don't want to choose somebody just because of their race and gender, but there's never been a person of this race and gender on the Supreme Court. So it's like, how else do we get there? What, what is, I want to know what the process for getting there is if we don't, if we want to just look past someone's immutable characteristics, okay, how else do we change, you know, the makeup of these things? You know what I think is missing, and I don't know um, what his policy has been on this, but in terms of this report, this is about promotion of people that are already in the force and making sure that they're being treated fairly just based on their qualifications. But I think that there's definitely an argument to be made about the recruitment process and making sure that we're recruiting from communities that reflect the people who they ultimately will serve. And so I think that, you know, that's one way that you can, if you want to make these sort of changes that he was trying to make, implement that without being offensive to anyone that's already in the force. And I mean, I, I'm i not going to make any statement on whether or not I think he was right in doing what he was doing, but that's certainly a better way of going about it to say, you know, let's go and recruit. Let's go actually reach out to the communities. Let's, let's get new blood into the force that can ultimately be promoted through these channels and not necessarily overlook someone uh, regardless of their qualifications based on an, an immune characteristic yeah and i think this is tricky i i think you asked the right question which is how do you Definitely. go about this and like you know as i've previously described my my position on the supreme court stuff is just straight up incoherent so i won't revisit that now because i do <laughs> think you need to make these changes i think yeah. my biggest issue with them is how he communicated and brought people along but yeah. i also think there are certain steps you could take along the way Right, and I don't know these people he picked. So yeah. I don't know if this is the right person. Yeah, or the we, don't wrong person. we don't have any yeah. evidence. I mean, because I really some of these people him, yeah. are saying that, oh, I, I was, I was on the job longer. I had seniority. Well, that doesn't mean anything. You yeah, know, you could have been on the job longer and not done as good of a job. Yeah, so we were, really ultimately don't know. They were both tenure and testing metrics that they were talking about in the report, um, and particularly the one guy with t- uh, twenty years tenure had the second highest testing metric as well. Um, I'm not sure what those testing metrics were, but those were internal right. to the force. Yeah. Yeah, so that's what it means. You got to design new criteria. Right now, union rules may prohibit this, but maybe you get a, a panel of people from the community to participate in the interview process, right? Mm. So people who are affected by this, right? And you know, maybe that that in some ways it also takes it out of your hands a little bit. So you can able to say, all right, now we've like agreed on this thing and yada yada. And you one one way he could have gone about this is is one step at a time. You'd be like, all right, we wanna right, we do want a police force that represents the community, right? Yes. We want a police force that understands the community, right? Because we're pleasing it. Yes. All right, trail of yes is now. So in, because of that, we need to have you know, we need to bring the community in on this process a little yeah. bit. Yeah. That is a hard yes, but let's say you get that yes. Keep going, right? And then in the end, people agree to the process. They could still, they still can and will have issues with it, but they'll yeah. have less to hang around your neck. You, you're less likely to lose your job in that scenario. And I get it when he looks at that wall and says it's too white. Like he's probably right, uh, but the thing is, like if your if your job is to bring along this police department and effectively manage it, 
being right isn't the only criteria for what it means to be effective at that yeah. job because now he's right and without a freaking job. Yeah. So that doesn't help anybody. And being know? right, you know, he can't just look at those individuals and say, oh, they're white, so they're problematic. Right. Like, you know, he doesn't know. I mean, he's, he's coming into this police department, so he doesn't know the individual backstories of all these right. individuals. Judging them for their skin color is no different from, you know, what's, what's, what's been going on in this country for, you know, hundreds of years. But again, I, I understand the sentiment. And it, there was also probably a lot of political pressure to do this because the guy 100%. before him was demoted because he defended his officers shooting rubber bullets at peaceful protesters in the light of uh, George Floyd. And so there was probably a lot of political pressure on him to do this. And maybe that's the reason why he was going about it in such a poor manner. But yeah, I, I, I totally do agree that it, it should have been done uh, a lot, a lot more carefully. And, you know, maybe with some com community uh, input that definitely does sound like it would have been a better way to go. Uh, but we want to end things with doing a little bit of update. We talked a little bit about TikTok and how it was being used to show things that were going on with the war in Ukraine and how there was a lot of people getting uh, banned from TikTok, getting their accounts taken down because they were showing things from Ukraine. Me particularly was was banned from TikTok. Now, TikTok has restored me, so I'm not going to badmouth them as much as I was going to, but there seems to have been an update here. So after Russia banned both Facebook and Twitter, TikTok announced that it it would block live streaming and uploading of new content in Russia amid the Kremlin's new law that any fake news that goes against the Russian narrative when it comes to this war in Ukraine is basically punishable by law. Uh, you can get up to 15 years in prison in Russia now if you broadcast uh, any news that they say goes against their reason for that particular war. Now, TikTok is claiming the reason that they're doing this, the reason why they're basically making it where you can't upload new content in Russia and you can't view new content in Russia, they're claiming is to protect their users against that new law that Russia has just passed. But a lot of people are claiming this is really because China owns TikTok and TikTok is just doing Russia's bidding here. Now, it's important to point out that Russian TikTokers could use VPN, a virtual private network, to bypass some of these bans. However, VPNs are greatly restricted in Russia, and I'm sure Putin is going to probably implement new laws to make those restrictions even harder, given that that's probably the only way someone could circumvent these things. But Oh, just one clarifying question on this. So uh, when you say China owns TikTok, so it's like a Chinese, it's a, it is a Chinese-based company, right? Yeah, like, BitDance, right. the company that owns TikTok is a Chinese-based company. Got it, got it. So like, and, and basically I read on that is like if you're, if, dance, bit dance, if, you're if you're a company operating within those borders then chances are that the government has like a strong you know hold on on your decision but it's still in place in ukraine right like uh, TikTok, TikTok is yeah yes TikTok is still in place in ukraine and there was uh you know we talked about this too about the russian government asking TikTok to uh at least take down some of the ukraine war videos across the board just because of its effect that it would have on uh young people i've as a person who uses TikTok a good bit, I've seen a lot less of that, but I am still seeing people from Ukraine uh, posting things about the war. So they haven't scrubbed that entirely. Uh, but yeah, there was some talk of even getting rid of that. But Ukraine as of right now still has access to TikTok. Yeah, I mean, the history of the TikTok is interesting. We'll have to cover it more another time. Like, you know, India, for example, doesn't even allow it yeah. uh, within mm -hmm. its country because of their relationship with China. So yeah. Um, we'll, yeah. you know, we'll, we'll keep an eye on this. Yeah, Trump uh, once tried to ban it. And yeah, it, it has a very complicated history. Unfortunately, you can't watch any TikToks from Russia, uh, but you can still watch TikToks from me. So that's, <laughs> that's, that'll, I'll, that'll make up for it. Uh, we want to thank you all for watching and listening. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube page. And if you're hearing or listening to our podcast, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. And we will see you guys next time. <laughs>